You are listening to season five of My Dad's podcast, My Blackish Transnational, a podcast about blackness and for reconnecting back to our native homelands. Find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check us out on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram or blacktransnational.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to My Blackness Transnational. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lambert. And coming up on this episode, I get to serve as a guest. Um, this is a special crossover episode that I'm doing with Ponsa Ponsa podcast, um, hosted by Dr. Uh, Mrs. Kemi Seriki. And uh, so this is an episode where I get to be a, a guest, and we're talking about culture and emotion. Um, but before I get into that a little bit more, let's get through our formalities. This is your first time listening to My Blackest Transnational. You can find this podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Um, also, check out our website, www.blacktransnational.com. We're also on YouTube, so you can find us there. Just search for My Blackest Transnational. Follow us on social media. Follow me, the host, at blacktransnational underscore. You can find the podcast at Black Transnational Podcast. It's also on Facebook at the same name, Black Transnational Podcast. And we're also on Twitter at MBI Transnational. All right. So this is a very straightforward introduction of the episode in January. So this is a previously recorded episode. I had the pleasure of being a guest on the Ponsa Ponsa podcast. Um, Monte Kemi and I do a lot of collaborations because we have a lot of aligned interests. And so she invited me and Dr. Abby Fapoenda, another person I consider an auntie of mine, um, who is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the Africana Studies Department. And so we had a very rich conversation. Uh, I know you hear me say it rich all the time, but this was a very rich one for real. We had a really good conversation about how Africans and our cultures influence our emotions and how we express it. Um, This conversation was influenced by another podcast that we listened to, a popular one that you all may know called Hidden Brain. Uh, So shout out to Hidden Brain. They They did a very interesting episode on how culture influences emotional expressions um, and we decided to kind of extrapolate that information and then unpack it from the perspective of the African immigrant experience. And so we had a very long conversation, um, but a productive and a productive and insightful one that focused on how our cultural upbringings, our cultural influences, and and the effects of colonialism essentially uh, influence how we go about receiving and expressing emotions, and how that plays a role as far as our offspring, so as far as parenting but also how it factors into our social lives as far as our loved ones and building relationships and sustaining them. Um, So I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. For those of y'all who, you know, always heard me a host, but maybe not heard me as a guest, I am very verbose. You you can find out that I am a professor because I go into really long diatribes and lectures about things that I'm passionate about. And this topic happened to be one of those. Um, But I hope you all enjoy the content. It was really fun. I had a good time doing it. Thank you so much for Auntie, to Auntie Kemi for letting me do this. And uh, I, I, like I said, I really wanted to put this episode on here for this season because I thought that the topic, though recorded earlier, was still very pertinent for what we do here on My Black is Transnational. So without any further ado, here's my guest conversation, my guest appearance, I should say, on the Ponsa Ponsa uh, podcast um, here on My Black is Transnational. Enjoy. 
Welcome to Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. I'm your host, Kemi Seriki, and today I'm having conversation about cultural background and influences on our emotional expression. How does cultural background and expression of emotion within African immigrant community influences intergenerational relationship? Could be both positively or negatively. Joining me today for this conversation is also a member of our community who have also participated in a previous community conversation with me and has been to my podcast before, Dr. Kelechi. So I welcome Dr. Abi Fakbohonda and Dr. Kelechi to this conversation. And this is a very important dialogue. So both of them are in academia, in the field of psychology, I believe, as well as health. So I would like to welcome every one of you to this conversation for coming to share your thoughts and your wisdom on this important topic about culture and emotion and how the influence of intergenerational relationship within African immigrant communities. So I just want to give a background of how I came to this topic in itself. So just to give a background about this topic, I came across this topic while I was listening to another podcast. So as a podcaster, you also listen to another podcast. So mm-hmm. recently I was listening to one of my favorite hosts, Shankar Vadedani. I hope I'm calling his name right, on Hidden Brain. So Hidden Brain explored the complexity of human behavior and psychology behind it in a changing world. This particular episode on Hidden Brain was called Decoding Emotion. And the title did caught my attention, which is why I found the episode very interesting. So the author, Pascha Masqueta, was the guest and the author of Between Us, How Culture Create Emotion. As the author described, we may think of emotion as universal, felt inside, but it is between us. This acclaimed psychology asks us to view emotion through lenses of what they do in a relationship, both on one-on-one basis or within the larger social network in itself. So she argues that acknowledging differences in emotion allow us to find the common ground, humanizing and humbling us for all for the better. So after listening to this topic, I thought that our community could benefit from this discussion and we could expand on our cultural background or our emotional expression may be part of the answer to the difficulties in creating intergenerational relationship within African immigrant communities. So before I go further, I want two of you to fully introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background, where you teach, the area of your teaching and your expertise. So Dr. Abi Fako Honda, you want to go first as an elder? (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness, uh, I rather would like Kilechi go first, but it's okay. Yeah, I'm Abby Fakonda. I My background is in public health and also nutrition as well, but more of public health at the moment. Primarily, I do have a consulting business, which I've run for over 20 years. But lately, I've been doing more of academic work, more of teaching and research as well, which I'm really finding interesting. And it seems as if I might be really going more into academia and research more than my consulting in the next um, few years. Over 10 years now, I've really been interested in immigrant health because at that time, we're talking about about 12 years ago, 
when I was a, a visiting assistant professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh, I just thought, oh, I need to pick a topic. You know, I'm, I have a two-year appointment and I want to just do some research. And that's how I got into immigrant health. I found that at that time, it was only one paper was written about immigrants. I think it's Dr. Venter. Mm. That, paper, yeah, that was the, yes, yeah. that was the only peer review article about African immigrants. I looked up and down and sideways. There was nothing. And I said, oh, definitely we do have none or very limited uh, knowledge about African immigrants. And that's when I just started uh, because funding was not there. And I just started, we just started with few focus groups that soon cost you more. And with time, I was able to meet other researchers and that's how I met Dr. Kelechi at that time. He was a doctoral student. I met him and I suddenly he was doing exactly what I was doing. And I said, oh my goodness. And that's how we, we linked and started collaborating. And we've been doing this collaboration for nearly 10 years now, maybe about eight years. And that's how I got into immigrant health. And I've been able to do some work here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania through the University of Pittsburgh. And even at the moment, apart from the African diaspora, I'm doing work in Lagos, Nigeria as well. Mm -hmm. um, so just to be able to see that link with people either migrating here to the United States and what's even happening, because some of their journey already started from back home, from Africa, wherever the country is. And some of the impact we're seeing now and some of the consequence we're seeing now, it's a journey that started decades before they got here. And we've been able to publish some work with uh, Dr. Kelechi as well about immigrants. And we're really interested in the younger generation, the offspring of African immigrants. We're still trying to get a hold of that. Thank oh, wow. you. That's interesting. Thank you so much for that broad presentation. So, Dr. Kelechi. Yeah. Hello. My name is Dr. Kelechi Bay Lambert. And as mentioned, so I won't get into much because I think we have so many overlaps on this uh, as far as how we're all connected. Last time I was on this show, I was at Portland. Now I currently am at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm on the clinical associate professor. My background is in public health, specifically community health. I have some postdoc training in psychology at the University of Florida. Primarily most of my academic experiences was at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So it's good to be back home in hmm. Chicago. Uh, it's very cold here right now, but you know, it's still good to be able to be back and to be able to see you again, Auntie Kemi and, um, and my Auntie Abby. And I know mm -hmm. formerly I would say Dr. Abby, but that's my auntie. Uh, she knows <laughs> it. You know? We've been doing this for some time, as she mentioned already. I do a lot of work specifically, though in immigrant health, I do a lot of work specifically focused on the concept of transnationalism and how cross-border connections influence our cultural perceptions that also influence our health behavior outcomes and attitudes, which is why I'm very interested in, in having this conversation to be able to kind of identify some of these transnational aspects that influence emotion and how it affects us, the younger generation, right? And I think on the show last time, I had brought up the notion of 1.5 generation, which I identify <laughs> as, right? And what that means, being in between. I wasn't born here, you know, but I grew up here. Mm -hmm. And I'm still connected so that we're stuck in the middle. And so we're not fully one or the other. And so how does that play a role as far as emotional comprehension and the demonstration of it? So it's good to be able to be back and have these conversations. I'm always passionate about it. And I love being able to have it with you all. So thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. You know, I really going to appreciate your input because you always have a good input through your broad knowledge of things. So since you have listened to this podcast on decoding emotion, what are your thoughts about 
what was discussed on the podcast? I thought it was fascinating. I've seen and we've had like discussions about, but not directly. And I liked the way it was truly decoded. Mm -hmm. It was unpacked in a way that really identified areas that challenged my ability to just reflect back and think about different experiences that I've had that I may have felt this particular person may have demonstrated emotion that I considered rude or, you know, distant or emotionless Mm -hmm. and not realizing what culture does. Because now it starts to make me think how I am as a parent, how my parents were to me in terms of things that children of immigrants would say, offsprings of immigrants would say and say, oh, they don't understand. And I wonder now how much of a role culture plays in the ability for us to be able to show emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that was mentioned by the professor was the example that was given was one about where, you know, she doesn't say thank you to her husband for giving her coffee. She just nods, right? Because that's already ingrained in the relationship that has been built already that the thank you is already there. You know, you know, I'm with you. I'm committed to you in this way. The thank you is already built in where, but the American expected to hear it frequently every time it's done. And so, you know, it just makes me think about our culture as a Nigerian and how we were brought up to be able to say and do certain things, but then also certain things was not said and done. And before I stop, it just makes me think about the conversations that we have. When we did our three-part series mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. on the intergenerational relationship, you know, one of the things that was mentioned by Dr. Titi was that when she was given the example of how the young African kids sometimes don't hear their parents say, I love you. They don't show affection in a way that I mm-hmm. guess they may see from their white or American mm-hmm. counterparts. Mm-hmm. But the parents will say, well, what do you mean I don't love you? I take care of you. I give you clothes. I give you food. You're, you have a roof over your head. How can you say I don't love you? Right. And so now that thinking about that, and so that made me reflect like, so whose fault is it? It's no one's fault. It's just the perception of it. Did my parents grow up in a culture, especially for my, like my mother and, and my, who speaks Yoruba, are there languages or expressions in our cultural languages that help just capture certain emotions that maybe they don't? And that's why us children, we don't see that. It just let me think about so many things, which is why I really loved that episode. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Because to chip in, I'm actually reading three books now written by other immigrants children from Latin America, South America, and also from Asia, from China, two of them. And one of them actually, you know, you might know him because I brought it, this is the book, whereby he was, yeah, he said, my parents don't have to tell me that they love me because it's not part of their culture to express emotion in that way. He said, Mm -hmm. but I know they love me when they wake me up in the morning and say, you have to go to school. When they make sure that I have enough food to eat. He said, why should the Western way of love expression to the children has to be the standard for everybody? And like you said, my daughter has told me before, she said, you don't tell us that you love us or you want to hug us. I said, in Yoruba, you call your children or call me Okomi means my husband. I said, when I call you Okomi or I call your brother Okomi, it shows that I'm saying that I love you because I always say that most of the time. So she said, Yoruba then is a love language. I said, yeah, it's a love language Mm -hmm. like that. You know, so I'm so happy that you brought that up. And I hope those who are going to listen to this, we take an example from it. So Dr. Fako Honda, what do you think? Yeah, I found the podcast very interesting, uh, Kalechi mentioned 
what came to my mind as I was listening, because I just listened, I listened to it briefly a few weeks ago, then I listened to it properly just a few hours ago before we started this program. What I thought was, hmm, there's so many things that even words can express. And the reason, and being an immigrant and coming from one space to another space, which is now, this is where we now call home, there are certain things that we've lost. Mm-hmm. It's there in our mind. It's there in our conscious mind. There are certain things we want to express. We can't express because the people we're trying to express it to will not understand. And some of those things that we can't express is lost in conversations, is lost in showing love, is lost in showing care, is lost in sometimes showing respect because you can't translate in English. Mm -hmm. or translated to friends and families. And the most difficult part of this situation, being an immigrant, is certain things you can't translate to your children as well. And because you can't translate them to your children in your language, because if your children can speak in that language, you'll be able to say it in that language and they will get it in that language. Mm -hmm. But because there's no English, we don't have the English word for those kinds of expression. You just let it go. And in the process, there's so many things that you miss that is expected of you from your children that maybe you're not even giving them. And they think, oh, you don't love us. Oh, you don't do this. That you don't understand. Of course we understand. How would we understand? Of course we understand. Because for you to make that journey to this point, you truly understand. But on the other hand, you don't understand their life here because they have another life outside their home. Mm -hmm. They have their other life as well. You don't understand that one. But Mm -hmm. at least you understand half of Mm -hmm. their life because Mm -hmm. part of you. But what I really like about what the lady said was that even when she's with friends, the way they express themselves and say, oh, thank you for a really nice meal. And then she'll be looking at them that, why do you have to thank me? You don't have to thank me, you know. Of course, in our culture, you always thank people. And sometimes certain things we'll do may be annoying to other people, but that's part of our culture. Like maybe you think too much or the way you, you care about certain things too much mm-hmm. or the way you show emotions too much. It may become irritating for other people, including mm-hmm. our children as well. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand why we do that is because that's how we are. That's who we are. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they may find it offensive. Mm -hmm. And for others, they may just overlook it. And sometimes when you have reactions from people, maybe a negative reaction in certain things you do, you withdraw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You withdraw. And that's where I really thought about some of the things that the lady said. Because when you're not able to express yourself authentically, fully Mm -hmm. express yourself Mm -hmm. the way you want to express yourself, Sometimes you just keep it into your yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Kelechi, you know, you see in public health, we talk about stress. You've done some work on stress and all that. And even when you look at um, research with African-Americans, some of the problems with health condition and health status is uh, mostly due to stress. Just keeping things. Sometimes you just can't physically express yourself. Mm -hmm. You keep Mm -hmm. it inside. Mm -hmm. You don't want people to feel one way or the other. You don't Mm -hmm. want to look one way or the other. 
and you don't want to show you're too aggressive or too passive or this and that creates illness for you as well and another thing that i see just listening to everything she said when you're not able to even express yourself totally with your spouse or with your children and you just keep quiet because you don't want to upset them you don't want to step on their toes all of those things i think at the end of the day leads to something that not totally positive but mm-hmm. sometimes negative yeah thank you so much i want to make two points from what you said about we come from the culture where we greet a lot uh-huh. where we say thank you a lot according to the yoruba yoruba could greet you more than 20 times a day uh-huh. for different reasons. they will greet you good morning they will greet you for good weather they will greet you when this is too sunny. They will greet you when it's raining. And you know, it's different way of greeting. And you have to understand the culture to understand why they express emotion in that way, why they are so connected with other people in that way. So when you come to this country and you see a country where everybody is so individualistic, you know, lifestyle, you could kind of look like, wow, I can't just imagine this. How would I be able to navigate through this environment that people just stand out, they stay away from you, everybody's an individual. And another thing that you said, Dr. Fakuanda, is about self-expression, whereby the West since we're immigrants in this country and we come from a culture whereby we're being taught to respect authority, respecting authority, even for us, where we work, where our children goes to school, we may not be able to speak up because we believe those are the authority. And from where we come from, that's how you should be respectful. And then in this society, they might look at it as something completely different, as somebody that they are not comfortable enough to express their feelings. So it's also happened to many people from Asian culture too, maybe from the podcast you hear about many people from Japan, you know, how they express their emotion is inward. They keep everything, they walk through their inner feelings by themselves on the inward. And it depends on also the situation. So by that, they're able to walk through whatever is going on without actually coming out and give an outburst about how they feel about things. So thank you so much for that. So as the author also said that in each cultural group, parents shape their children's emotion to fit the cultural normative, the way we present emotion towards our children. How do you think that affects our intergenerational relationship? So I think, and I'm sharing a perspective from the offspring side, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And growing up, the idea of expressing emotions. I was brought up in a way where I was acculturating to a new world mm-hmm. and that new world shaped a lot of how I perceived emotions and how I even express my emotions to different people. For me, I think I had to be able to, and this is kind of just part of the way I've always interpreted and, and kind of displayed my form of intelligence was just being able to have to catalog my emotions, different people at different backgrounds, different just Based on who I was talking to, it mm-hmm. really was was able to determine how I should express my emotion. And so for my parents, I know that saying how you really feel, it wasn't the way, it's not the norm. As mentioned, it's really more framed in respect, framed in a respecting authority, adding the courtesy in there and expressing yourself how you really feel about something. If you're rebelling or you, or you have a, a countering thought to what your parents are telling you, 
tend to be like, no, I don't want to do that. Right. Like that was not the way I think now as things are becoming more westernized in even parts of Nigeria, I think there's some people that are aligned on that, but that's still not something that you do. And so acculturating to the U.S. and really seeing like some of my mates express it, you know, that's something that we even joke about when you see like African-American people, how you talk to your parents. It's like, whoa, like you say that <laughs> like, and you know, can't just call your, you can't just say no when your mom, like you don't do that. Right. So that's something that we still, despite how much we complain about it as children of immigrants, that's something that we also kind of take um, possession of to know that that's something that we experience Mm-hmm. growing up in an immigrant household. And even for me, I also find it very interesting as well, because not only am I growing up as a young man, I'm growing up as a young Black man, young African man. Mm-hmm. And right, so the intersecting identities that I have mm-hmm. as man, Black, African, specifically Nigerian, mm-hmm. how does that now play a role in how I'm supposed to demonstrate my emotion? My dad has never, it wasn't often I think now, maybe, <laughs> my dad has never told me he loved me, right? Like, it's not something that, but it was never something that I I worried about. It was never something mm-hmm. that I felt, oh, this is a missing part in my heart. My dad has mm-hmm. never told me he loved me. Because again, as you kind of shared already, the actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being able to see what efforts he's taking to guide me, mentor me, to provide advice. It's more so in the African household, when your parents don't talk anymore, mm-hmm. right? That's when essentially the issue is. That's when the problem, that's when you know the emotional disconnection is happening, mm-hmm. right? And that's something like people don't necessarily always think about, but the day my mom decides to stop complaining, yelling, and be showing her frustrations, I know I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. I know that she doesn't care anymore, mm-hmm. right? Because at that point, she doesn't have to say, she can even say she's tired. She's tired. She can say that even today, I know she's not tired, but when she actually stops, <laughs> that's when I know I've done something mm-hmm. that is irreparable. That's something that's very egregious that I need to be able to fix. And if I don't fix it, then it's going to be permanent damage. So I've obviously never gotten to that point, but it's just to show that in some immigrant households, your parents can express these different forms of emotions and this can be frustration, yelling. And as you know, mentioned already that you may perceive it as, oh, this is, this is annoying. Why are you yelling at me? Why can't you just talk to me a regular person? Why can't you do this? Why are you always? But by the time that person stops and then you realize like, wow, oh, this person is really gone. And so I've had to learn as I've been growing up that, of course, my parents they express emotion, but as as they too have become more acculturated to the land, they've adopted some aspects. I don't think all completely, but they've adopted some aspects, especially now as they get older, they have grandkids and they grand, you know, their <laughs> grandkids are, are part of this world. You know, I think now they share a little bit more emotion. My mom tells, you know, she tells the babies, I love you. And she even says it now <laughs> to me, you know, so it's, it's become mm-hmm. a little bit more softer in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that growing up, I was taught to be able to similar shame. Shame is a very big weapon in our community because of the interdependence that we rely on in African communities. So mm-hmm. the collective brain and the idea mm-hmm. of shame mm-hmm. is a huge thing. And I think that's something that's very I wouldn't say universal, but it's very similar across other immigrant non-Western mm-hmm. communities where the worst thing I've ever done, and I'm just giving a, uh, the worst thing I ever did in my household was I got my ears pierced. This is my freshman year. 
I got my ears pierced. And of course, I tried to hide it from my mom, but she found out because mothers find out. And so what happened was it wasn't, oh, like just yelling, I'm going to deal with the individual and we'll handle it. It was, I'm calling your uncle. I'm calling your auntie. I'm calling your grandparents. I'm calling your big sister. I'm calling your little sister, right? Come and see what your brother has done, right? And everybody then talks to you and then you're saying, why did you do that? Whatever, despite how they feel, that collective effort to show you that, oh, what you've done is wrong so that you feel it, like you've let everyone down. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to do that. The outcast mentality, the disowning, the power to disown is a huge thing in our communities. And that's something as children of immigrants that we initially will fear. I think some nowadays are like, you know, the rebellious ones are like, whatever. But the ones who really value the culture and mm-hmm. the cultural training and upbringing, that's something that you never want to do. For conversations that I've had with lots of young African women who are trying to find partners or, you know, husbands, whatever, that idea of how the collective community comes to you and says, ah, where's your husband? And where, you know, you're getting older, that, that idea of, it's, for them, it's like, wow, this is embarrassing. But what you also don't take into consideration is that from the other side, it's a form of care. Like mm-hmm. they care, they're concerned, right? They want you to be happy. And they believe those things, having a husband, having a family that grows, there's a joy. And for someone who has that, I see the joy, but you also want that for the people you care about. So it's almost like from that perspective, you're trying to, you're hoping for that same type of happiness, but for the person who's receiving that message, it's like, why are you disturbing me with all this? I'm trying, it's it's not easy, whatever the case may be. But again, how things are done collectively instead of individualistically plays a major, a major role. And it still impacts us even as we grew up as an immigrant. Yeah. Thank you so much for that input, (laughs) because I was just thinking about so many of our children who have a strained relationship now with their parents. They don't want anything to do with them, thinking that they didn't understand their struggle growing up in this country. They feel like they've been punished too much. They never express emotion. They never told them that they love them. And now some are actually, instead of actually dealing with their own problem that, because every, whether your parents are from America or they are black, white, every family have their struggle of what they struggle with. And as an individual, you develop later on, you could have other issue that you also develop with, whether it's the fault of your parents or is the fault of the society where you're living in. But instead of you facing that, you put all the blame on your parents. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't because of my parents, I would have been this. If it wasn't because of my parents, I would have been that. You know, it's because of their immigrant experience that they brought in the cultural value that they instill in you that you think that is not something that they should have changed their way of doing things. So thank you so much for that. So Dr. Abi, what do you want to input on that? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that Dr. Ibe Lambert talked about that it's, it's really loaded. Looking at being an immigrant parent and having adult children, and even as we talk about thinking back when you were younger, your parents don't say, I love you, but you know they love you. They don't do, I love you, I love you. But when we move into this environment and we begin to see, oh, it's a good thing to tell someone that you love them, to acknowledge. Sometimes we overdo it, but it's a good way to acknowledge. <laughs> it's a good way to acknowledge you, that you love someone. But that's for some people, people are different. Some people are extremely emotional. 
some people are just going on with their own life. Either you tell them you love them or you don't love them. They don't care. <laughs> they just, it doesn't bother them. It doesn't have any impact, any negative impact or positive impact on them. They're just moving on. And they may know you love them. And even if you don't love me, I'm fine. We're okay. But then what we learned in this environment is you just needs to be acknowledged, not needs to be cuddled, needs to be like you need to really show a lot of love to that child compared to the other one. And what it does is build confidence. It makes that person feel good about themselves. They'll be able to achieve more and all of that. Unlike where we come from. Some kids are just there. We wonder why they didn't do well because they, they, nobody ever showed them that they truly acknowledge that they love them. So I like that positive part that there's certain things. And that's part of being an immigrant. You come into a new space, you learn certain new things, new norms, and you begin to use it positively for you. And there are certain things that you bring from your native land that when you come into this new space, you begin to say, mm-hmm. Now, you may not see then, but, but now you begin to see that this is not the best way to go about this. I really don't like this. I need to drop this. And you pick the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when you talk about children, you mentioned something very, very important. You have kids, especially, you know, we tend to put more pressure on female children compared to male. You can have a male son, you know, just galavanting, doing his own thing. <laughs> But the next is 35, not bringing anybody on, but, you know, series of whoever's coming in and out. Is, oh, just leave that boy alone. You'll figure it out. But unlike the female child, when they get to certain, what's going on, you know, this, because the norm is where you come from. When you get to a certain age, there's certain expectation. And what we know over the years now, those expectations are still there, but it's not like when we got married. At 25, which is even later that you finish college and you get married in, in those days. But now you see someone is 30 that is not even married yet, and then you start putting the pressure starts building up. And I begin to see more and more um, children, they're really, really resisting that to the point of even resentment towards mm-hmm. parents that mm-hmm. please. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to talk about this. I don't even want to go there. And it begins to say, they begin to say, oh. Why are you doing this? Why are you pushing? And when the parents will say, it's a normal thing we're doing. This is where we come from. It's nothing wrong in asking any of your children what's going on, what's the plan, or, or something. Says, oh, we're not where you came from. This is a different space. Don't ask me that. Don't talk about that. And for many, many parents, that's really, really deep pain for them mm-hmm. because you say, oh, this is what I'm doing out of love. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's because you love them. And you said that, and Kaleji, you're doing out of love because you know what it is to, to have a partner. You've experienced it. You know what it is to have your own children. You've experienced all those positive things. But then you're in a society where they're telling you, you don't have to have all of those and you still be happy. Mm-hmm. Or you have to have a good job, you know, have your nice homes and be mm-hmm. up in your career and everything will be fine. And, pe- and some people are just fine. And they're happy in that space. So then you have that conflict uh, that African immigrants or other immigrants as well, and parents, you feel that pain. You know, um, you don't want to go for that. You don't want to push for that. They're really resisting you. And you don't want to talk about this. And sometimes that may be it. It may not happen at this point. 
and they'll tell you I'm fine, I'm happy. So you have to be happy with me as well. And because we're not used to, the, so it's something that there's so many things that we have to learn. We have to start on learning things as immigrants coming into this space and learn new things in order to create a suitable environment for your own self and people around you. And some of the learning process can be very, very painful mm -hmm. because you have to leave some of the things that you feel this is good. Yeah. You have to leave it behind yeah. and learn new things. So that's how I see it. I do want to add something to Kimmy. Sorry. She mentioned the good part, which I don't know if I spoke on that too, because I do think that there are some positive aspects in the way our parents raised us in African household that I think has shaped us for those who actually adopt it and embrace it, the idea to be resilient. And there are lots of conversations I've had with my fellow offspring of immigrants that we talk about how we've made it this far in life is because of resilience. And sometimes it may seem like, for example, the idea of being able to take criticism, right? And I think it was even discussed in the podcast how she mentions as a professor, one of her students would say that she wrote in red <laughs> margins, the paper is born. And how she was taken aback by it, but the professor was saying that this is coming from a place of care, right? And uh, and showing that I'm interested, I'm invested. And so there's this idea. Growing up in an immigrant household, I used to always tell people, I even tell my wife sometimes, there's no insult that you can insult me with that I haven't heard before, right? <laughs> and, and, and of course, like, there's some people who are very, as Abby mentioned, very sensitive and may, of course, as parents, you have to learn your children, know how they respond to certain things. But for me, growing up, I've heard all the insults, <laughs> I've heard all the criticism, positive and negative. And that helped me understand that because regardless of whatever my mom C said, there was food. Like I never felt any type of negative thing. She was upset with me for the moment. She said some things, we move on. And she still took care of me. I still lived a very happy life. So of course I didn't feel abused per se, but I think there's some, of course, there's some people who may feel respond otherwise. But for me, I felt it helped me because if someone criticized me about something, whether it's a paper I wrote, whatever, I just, <laughs> like, it's, yeah, I just, okay, that's fine, mm -hmm. right? I can be able to move on. I know what the goal is and I'm able to overcome whatever barriers or whatever it is. There's some people because of that who don't have the ability to be able to truly push mm -hmm. past that moment of that may, they may consider adversity because of their training. And that's not to insult or denigrate anyone's upbringing, but it's just mm -hmm. to speak specifically to mine and mm -hmm. some who may have similar experiences mm -hmm. growing up in an African or immigrant household mm -hmm. is that because of your parents and their want to be able to show you or guide you to where you can find a place in society. One of the things that I know is for sure is that they try to show you on how to properly present yourself, how to handle yourself. And I think inadvertently too, regardless of whatever the intentions was behind the criticism and anything, it shaped me to be someone who was able to overcome certain things. And that's something that I try to do for my kids, right? And that's something that as working with my wife, who didn't grow up like that, she's like, oh, wait, why are you doing that? Like, why are you saying those things? Like, why are you so harsh when it comes to my parenting <laughs> style? Why are you so direct? And I tried to explain to her like, you know, my kids need to have some callous because the world that you're trying to raise them in is not going to be as, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. as cozy as we created in our, we created yeah. our home. Yeah. And of course, as a parent, you care, you don't want your kids, but you also have to face the reality of what life is. And so that's something that I've always had to try to, and we still as partners and, and husband and wife and parents, we always negotiate, right? And something that as now she becomes more exposed 
my wife becomes more exposed to the African side on a deeper level. Now that we're back mm-hmm. home, she mm-hmm. starts to see some of those things where I think before we was just like, wow, like you're just a military. And I'm like, I'm not <laughs> never in the military. Like it's not that, right? It's just that I really believe in the long run, it's going to help you, right? Mm-hmm. And so even when we talk about the idea of how we view our friendship, the idea of being friends with your children is something that nowadays it's being more encouraged because of that emotional, you don't want to hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. You want them to like you and all those, in which I don't subscribe to. I don't really care about those things, but that's just what is being promoted nowadays, what they call gentle parenting. It's like, you have to be softer. You have to be very considerate and empathetic and feel, and I don't believe our culture really subscribes to that at all. And I don't think it really has helped, but that's something now that I think about the differences and how I've had to pick one and get rid of the other, whatever the case may be. It makes it very challenging when you're trying to maintain this transnational identity. You have to negotiate constantly and you're hoping that it creates the best product out there. I'm so happy that you talk about gentle parenting and being your child's friends. You know, I remember my daughter telling me one time, you know, we are friends. I said, I could, and I could discipline you. Your friend can't discipline you. Uh-huh. They can't tell you what is wrong. So I can't be your friend. I'm your parent. I'm your parents that is open to conversation to, you know, when you want to have conversation with me or, you know, you have your ideas that you want to share with me. I'm here to listen, but I will never identify myself as being your friend, but your parents, because I could tell you, I could discipline you, I could do a lot of all those things. And Dr. Abby, you mentioned something very important that many of our children within our community have also complained about they raised the female child to be a homemaker, even though the child is busy, you know, going to school, doing everything just like the boy is doing. But most of the housework within the household is given to the girls. And the boys are just minding their business because the parents believe that, well, you know, the girl is going to marry and she has to take care of her children without thinking that, you know, even the boy has to do the same. Even it affected me because with my two children, my son, the oldest one, he sleeps late on Sunday. Sunday is when I get up to cook all the food for the whole week. And my daughter usually get up with me because I have to fix her hair when she was growing up. And after fixing her hair, I go to the kitchen and cook. And I asked her, I said, why don't you join me in the kitchen to come and cook? She said, when are you going to ask my brother to get up as well? Because, you know, he needs to do the same thing, you know. So that's what actually is going on regarding that. So our children complain, our daughters complain about parents waking them up, you know, telling them they have to do all the household work, whereby the boys are just around doing nothing, you know. So it's something that we have to start looking into that I think, you know, we have to change as a society, as a community in itself, even back home. Because if we expect our daughter to be doctors, lawyer, and engineer, (laughs) should we also expect them to always be in the kitchen? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So what is wrong with teaching our boys on how to also do the household chores at the same time? So I want to go to this. You've mentioned it a little bit anyway. Emotional expression is different across culture. Cultural background dictates or predicts how emotion are felt or expressed. It shapes the way individual feels about certain situation or a way individual express their emotion. Given our immigrant background, do you think as immigrant, 
with so many other challenges trying to adjust to a new country, do you think that we have to relearn new ways of expressing our emotion to fit the new country we found ourselves? Yeah, remember I said, I mentioned that we're in a situation that we just have to relearn. We have to relearn things. Some of the things that we're used to, that we grew up with, and even some of our culture, characteristics, some of our culture, we have to let go because you will begin to see that it truly does not fit into this space mm-hmm. any longer. It's not that you're throwing your culture because culture is an ongoing thing. It's evolving. It's not just a stagnant thing. And for some cultures, some people, oh, this is the culture. This is how we do things. And then suddenly you find out that, no, no, this is 100-year-old mm-hmm. stuff you're doing here. It doesn't fit in. For example, you're still having some culture saying women can't be part of this. Women can't go to the school. Women has to be circumcised and all of that. You see that this doesn't fit in into this way. So in those cultures, it has to keep on evolving. There are certain things that you have to let go and new things that you, you have to modify the old to suit the new. So I believe that the fact that you are an immigrant, you can only survive by relearning new things. Because you're in a new place. Mm-hmm. The way you talk, the way you express yourself, even the way you see your own child. You have a child in Nigeria. You're surrounded by extended families. Grandmothers are there. Both grandmothers in the same space. They will be in the same house at the same time, mm-hmm. taking care of those kids. You will see aunties, older aunties, you will see cousins, you will see all of that. So your children grew up with those extended family, which is a good support for them, emotional support for them. Mm -hmm. But most of our children here do not have that emotional support. They grew up isolated. Many, many, many of our children grew up isolated. And some of the things that they feel resentful about or upset about and complain to us as parents about is because they're isolated. Because if they're with other family members, with other cousins, with other aunties, oh, uh, do you know what my mom did about this? <laughs> it's like he was, ah, when I was growing up, I was the first child. And this happened to me personally. I was the first child. Whenever I bring my grade and I was like, you know, maybe there's 40 students in class and I'm like, you know, you, you, you bring your, your grades in position, the, the first position, second position, yeah. all the way to the 40th position. And then you bring like uh, number 15, the 15 position or 20 position. Your mom will say, ha, look at you. Then she will use that proverb, that Yoruba proverb, mm-hmm. which means the horse at the back looks at the horse in front to run. So as the horse in the, like a horse in front is really running fast, mm-hmm. the ones at the back follows that horse mm-hmm. in the front and runs well as well. But when you have the one, the horse in the front, that is lacking. It's like being sluggish is now really running well. The other horses at the back will not run as well. Mm-hmm. So what they're telling me is you're the first child. You're bringing 15 position into this house. What do you expect your other siblings? And now, you know, at that time you'd be wondering, okay, but now you'll be thinking, what has my brain got to do with my other siblings? They can be first and I'll be, you know, I'll be mm-hmm. the fifth or the in class. Mm-hmm. But my point is, Those are the kinds of things, even when you're talking about criticizing a child. And what that does to me at that time is like, "Ah, 
I have to do alone. I don't want to disappoint my parents in the first place. And I don't want to let my other siblings, my other three siblings, see me as a failure. That if I fail, they will fail as well, because that's what's in my mind. Mm -hmm. And that keeps me, just keep on going. You can't fail. You have to do well. You can't. It's a way to motivate a child, even though it could be very callous and sometimes mean. <laughs> and, you know, but at that point in time, it was a motivating factor for me to do well. So you can see how things, but if you do something like that in the United States and tell your child, oh, they say you've ruined their self-esteem. They are low of this. They are now depressed. You have to take them for counseling and us. Wow. And it's true in this, in this environment because we pamper children. We more or less spoon feed them. You know, they have to be your friend. You have to keep on telling them you love them 10 times a day and all of that. And for most children, because that's the environment they've grown in, if you don't do that to them, mm-hmm. it has a negative impact on some children. So you have to relearn. You have to relearn so many things in this new space and let go certain things. Mm. But you don't have to throw everything of your culture out, but mm. try to bring the very, very positive, like what Kelechi said, that when the way we bring up our children, sometimes it may be really hard on them as they're growing up, but as they become adults and having their own children, they will say, thank God I was well brought up and I can pass this legacy to my own children as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah. at that time, it's not that funny. It's, it's not really funny at all. Which is what Kalechi is doing now. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, 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 it's not a, a dad now. So you really appreciate mom yeah, and dad now. I and, and, I, and, and so I label myself, you know, jokingly as a new age African dad. And that is because <laughs> I still believe in some of the principles in which I was brought up in, in some strictness and things of that nature. But I also am very aware of doing some of the things that my parents didn't do while I was here, which I think would have helped, which is the idea of, yes, I let my children know that I love them and I discipline my kids. They know exactly why. I give an opportunity for them to express themselves, which is okay. And it may not be always the freshest, but I allow for us to have a conversation about how this whole thing went down and how they feel about it and what can be done moving forward. But again, similar to what I'm not your friend, right? So it's not about, you can express yourself, but you have to learn how to deliver the message because I'm not your friend. You can't just talk to me anyhow, Mm -hmm. but you can still tell me how you feel and why you were, you didn't like you, what you didn't understand and how I can explain it to you. Because I think that also then allows them to understand that there's no maliciousness behind mm-hmm. my approach, right? And, and, it's, and it's one of those things that even when my daughter, like my wife would say, well, you don't smile enough. Like, oh, why, you smile? like <laughs> why am I smiling? Like, I don't need to smile all the time. Like, she's not going to, my, my, my oldest, especially my oldest, like, she's not going to see everybody smiling at her all the time. Like, no, not everybody's, mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not real life. But she knows, of course, you know, I'm here and, and I care. And I think that goes to just the larger message as far as what Auntie Abby just mentioned, that idea of you can't let this person down. That's a huge thing, especially in our culture. That's something that drove me. I could not afford to fail. There was no way. So even when it came to college, my own story as to how I got to where I was, when I found moments of failure, when I hit moments, of, I wasn't going home. I couldn't come home. I couldn't come home unless I came home with something worth that was noteworthy for, because it wasn't just about me. 
It's about the younger ones, mm. right? And then how would that make you look? And I wish my brother's actually downstairs. I wish I can have him come and talk because he has a very interesting <laughs> perspective as far as being the younger one and having the pressure of having to now match yeah. what you're older, being the, now you have to be, match that fast horse that, that's at the mm -hmm. front, right? And the pressure of having to keep pace with that horse is a different perspective that I, yes. I would like for him to share at some point in the future. But for me, being the one that was the oldest at the time, I could not afford it. It was like, what are you going to So when I got my ears pierced and I was like, and I got ridiculed for that, it was like, what is your younger one going to them two? They're going to get their ears pierced. Lo and mm. behold, one of some of them did. And of course, when they did, it was like, see, it's you. You don't want to mm -hmm. open the door for them to do this. Mm -hmm. So now <laughs> you did it. right? And, and I can't criticize them because you've done it. So it was kind of, it was that idea of you are the one setting the pace. And if you set the pace, that means everyone else is going to follow. And that essentially is what really shaped my approach to mentorship and really wanted, because I understood what it was like to have to be the one to uplift others, because that was my responsibility as an older, mm -hmm. oldest child. Mm -hmm. And then it just, it just kind of took off with other younger ones or who I consider my juniors as far as having that interdependent collective approach to dealing with people. But as far as the emotional part, it's one of those things that where I'm trying my very best to be able to go back and forth. So I bring in those African idea of being able to handle certain things, being able to be direct with emotion, being able to show it more than I can tell it. But I'm also having to understand that like, I also have to allow opportunities for them themselves to not feel isolated. Because when I would get punished, it was like, do this, go, go away from me, get away from me. And I could go to the corner, face the wall, whatever it is, and just deal with it. And then we move on. This generation is not equipped to handle that. Right. So you have to be able to now provide some level of reassurance to let them know that there's nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. This is a behavioral thing. It's something that you can fix. You can continue to work, progress towards improving on. And this is the reason why I did what I did. And here's the learning point behind it. Right. This is what you have to learn. This is what I'm trying to get you to understand, because I have to have that same conversation with my kids, which is what, when I would tell my oldest daughter before my two babies were born was you're going to do this because you're going to have younger ones after you. And what are you going to be able to tell them? What are you going to be able to teach them? You can't just be their friends alone. You have to also be able to contribute to their life some way. And the way you can do it is, you know, through X, Y, Z, because the respect is what comes first. Mm -hmm. The friendship comes later. And that was the approach, right? That's my mindset is that you have to be able to show them that you can give them something that can help their lives be better. Mm -hmm. And as they grow, the dynamic changes. And of course, they can be friends, but they will revere you more as an older sister mm -hmm. when, and they will listen to you more because they know you've done something for them. Children don't forget, regardless of whatever you want to think, children don't forget. So, you know, when I would tell my oldest this, when you take care of them, you, you, you feed them, you carry them, you change it. Yeah, they know you're the older sister, but when you're like 25 and they're, you know, 15, when you tell them to do something, they'll do it because they know they can't forget what you've done for them. You were there. You, mm -hmm. you fed them. They can't dare disrespect you mm -hmm. because if they do, now the collective comes and they say, why would you disrespect this person that did this for you? Mm -hmm. How dare you do this? Mm -hmm. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's how we as an African culture go about mm -hmm. holding our people accountable. Mm -hmm. Right. That's how we, we account for each other mm -hmm. is by saying, how can you do this when this person did this for you? Isn't that 
love? Isn't that the care? Why would you now try to talk to them anyhow? Mm -hmm. So that's something that my wife, coming from her upbringing, didn't really think about. It's just like, well, look, she's a child. She's not the one that had the children. Mm -hmm. She's the one (laughs) that was a child herself. So Mm -hmm. why are we trying to put this on her? Right. Why are we putting this responsibility on her when she's not the one that had the children? It's our responsibility. And I get that part, too. So, again, it's just the cross-cultural yeah. perception yeah. of raising and even just showing how do you build emotions? Mm-hmm. Because for her, she's looking like, I don't want to stress her. She's not the one that made these decisions. So why is she accounting for it? Where for me is you need to learn how to take care of other people. <laughs> like You need to learn. And because you're old, by it's not like two years, even if it was, but it's not by two years, three years, by 10, you know, nine. That's almost a decade. There's a huge gap. So we've always been working constantly to try and mesh both where we don't put too much, but we also let her understand her responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a motivating factor for her now too, because she knows I have to get these good grades. I have to know some things I want to take care of my brothers and sisters, but I also know that when it's too much for me, I can let you know, you know, and that, and so those types of things, it's it's a very interesting experience that I am having right now um, as a young parent. And that's something that even emotionally, when it comes to how I express myself with my children, compared to how I talk to you all, compared to how I talk with like my friends, my emotional expression with my children It's not distant, but it's a little bit rigid Mm -hmm. because I try not to lean too much because my mom, my mom would always say like, see, when I give you an inch, right, you decide you want to take a mile. And and so, and that's the idea of when I give you one thing, you take advantage of it. So, and it's, and that's always kind of the way kids are. They're going to take advantage of whatever and they'll test you. They'll test the boundaries. So for me, emotionally at this stage in my child's life, I'm very rigid. I'm not too friendly. I'm not too mean. But I also, she also knows, you know, I don't play with that. Like, I don't know the boundaries. Yeah, there are boundaries. There are boundaries. Right. Where where my wife, there's really not that. Right. And that's fine because we both understand what that does as far as giving her a well-rounded experience. Mm -hmm. Because she knows which parent to go to for what. (laughs) And what (laughs) what parent to go to for what. And that's how the other younger ones are going to see things, too, is that they understand who is who because of how she is interacting with us so as growing up in an african immigrant household that definitely helped me understand how to properly and even for lack of a better word how to properly code my emotions Mm -hmm. and how i can be able to deliver them based on the situation and based on the people that i'm dealing with Mm -hmm. because that's part of the transnational experience for me and that's what i've learned from listening to this podcast yeah thank Mm -hmm. you so much for all this input uh, dr kelechi and uh, dr abby because Mm -hmm. a lot of things that you said dr abby too that you know asian why you need whereby the leading horse set the pace for those that follows Mm -hmm. and it could be good and bad Mm -hmm. okay it could put a lot of pressure on the leading horse. And then you could also put a lot of pressure on the younger ones. Okay, the leading horse, the first child set an example in the behavior, but you know, in how they express it, even in academia, you know, that, oh, your brother went to medical school, you know, maybe you too, you could go to medical school or be a lawyer or doctor and engineer. And that has a negative aspect of the whereby we are not looking at individual child, that children are different in terms of their personality is different from one to the other. So we tend to push thinking that every child that we have is going to follow the ones that comes after each other. So there's a good part and the negative part of all these things, you know. So we are not creating, we didn't come from a society where individualistic kind of thinking 
is the major background of things. You know, you have to think collectively of the community. In a community, if something happens within an household, the first thing the parents will feel, how do you want the neighbors, the community, the family, everybody, even the we you are in America, they're thinking about people in Nigeria, if they hear about these things, how do you want them to feel, to see, I'm going to be shameful because we carry our children's shame as part of our shame. Mm-hmm. You know, without thinking that it's very difficult. We as parents try the best we can. But if something happens that, you know, is something that we consider to be shameful, how do we address it? How do we overcome that? Even within the community whereby we keep things on a secret level, we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to bring out the shame that people are going to be talking about me. Maybe my child is going through so many other things. And that actually have a negative impact. It created communities that also projected that we're all perfect. And we are not. And that is actually affecting us not building a supportive group together. So in terms of being able to support one another, maybe somebody's child is going through other emotional issues. How can we as a community gather together to embrace that family, to help the child, to help the parents, to ease the burden on them? Those kind of things is something that our people tend to keep under the curtain because they don't want to appear weak or they don't want to appear ashamed, you know, or other people talking about them or they're going to laugh at me, mm. you know, a lot of all those things. So even though many of our members of our community belongs to church or mosque, but it's something that they don't feel comfortable talking about the vulnerable aspect of their life yes. to those different groups that they belong. That's another thing that I think is very important to address. So and I also want to talk about the respect of the elders. The two podcasts that we had together, this past Monday, I had to hold the community conference of an organization in New York that actually deals with uh, ACS, that they deal with children who are being abused and all that stuff. And there's another agency that deals with other issues that they cater to African immigrant communities. So they asked if I should, could come in and talk about when they come across Africa, how do they prepare to serve them? So I told them, go and listen to those two podcasts and then tell me what question that you have. Mm. So one of the director of the program who was present and she said, one thing that I saw when I was listening to that podcast, everybody calling each other auntie, uncle. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she, she said, are they related or is it part of the culture? So I had to explain to her that it's part of the culture mm-hmm. because in our culture, the respect for the elders is very important. Mm-hmm. And when you treat people with respect, they're willing to open up. You know, when you treat them with respect, they're willing to open up and allow you to come into their life. But when you don't treat them with respect, it's negative aspect of things. So that also shared over to many of our children who believes they have to express themselves or they feel like, oh, now we are in America. I don't need to address elders in a respectable manner. And when the elders tend to talk to them and say, listen, you know, be respectful to the elders of the community. That does not stop you from actually engaging in conversation. Whereby, Kelechi, Dr. Lambert, you you model that a lot. Beautifully. Mm. Mm. Okay, beautifully. But many members of our community, many of our children, 
that are born here or brought here at a very young age, they don't feel like they have to do that anymore. Mm. Which many of them have come across. And I said, in this society now, everybody have a pronouns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have for they, they are for them. So my pronouns is Mrs. <laughs> Me. That's my pronouns. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> so because in order to attract intergenerational dialogue, there has to be some form of respect. Mm -hmm. in the way you express yourself. Mm -hmm. So apart from your own children, but other children within our community has to show the same kind of respect for the elders of the community. Because if other outsiders see the way the, the younger generation are treating their older generation, they would think it's okay too exactly. to talk exactly. to them anyhow. Exactly. exactly. Uh -huh. you, just so, to, you just spoke to something that I think it's very important. I think sometimes we don't see, which is if we talk to our parents or our aunties or our elders, anyhow, then who won't? <laughs> like, who won't, right? Because again, we have to think about it. It's not, and, and I'm speaking from the perspective of being a Black immigrant, right? And being Black, not just in America, but across the world and how Black people are perceived. And this, you see all these messages about protect black women, protect black people, protect black elders, protect this, that, protect blackness. And then we don't do it ourselves. That in a sense is a form of protection. When you show someone that you value them by calling them auntie, auntie, that's a familial term to embrace them, to bring them closer to you, to show them that you value them. Right. And I think like even in Indian culture, the idea of calling someone auntie and uncle is very common, but it's also mm -hmm. something that you know that that person has taught you something. Right. And that person is going to teach you something, whether it's something small, something big, as far as life lessons go. That person, because of their experience in life, has the capability to teach you something that you don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Right. And that in itself, you should have some value. Now, of course, you as a growing person, though, you should at least have the capability to discern and be able to identify when someone's being abusive of their elderly, <laughs> of their elder status on you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when that person isn't. And that's my thing. My whole thing is, of course. I call you auntie, but when we get to the point where you start abusing the dynamic, mm -hmm. then we have a problem, right? And that's mm -hmm. something I said in the last podcast too, which is I play the respectful role until something has been done to show a breach in this contract where you've mm -hmm. now taken it to a level that's become more insulting mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. degrading than to not just me, but my family. And that becomes a problem. In the regard, if, if we're sitting here and we're talking to our elders and we show that this person is a person of value. When we bring other people from other cultures to our home or to our community, they too see how the behavior is modeled and they understand this is the expectation. I always use my family as an example, but when I come to my house, when I brought my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and I brought her to my home and she sees, oh, I prostrate for my mom and this, that, and that. She sees that and she too, she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I guess I'm supposed to do this too. And so for her, but then I also tell her like, look, it's not just to, yes, as even the podcast mentioned, humility is a big part in our culture too, that we didn't talk about enough in this program, but humility is a major thing that we always like to spread across our culture. But one of the things I always tell her is that at some point too, it comes back to you, especially when we're at this stage where we're no longer in our teens or in our 20s, we're older. You start to see the younger kids to do that to you. They call you auntie. They come to you. They show you that respect. It comes full circle. Mm -hmm. right? And that's something that I have to get comfortable with. With one of my younger ones calling me Uncle Uncle Kelly. And I was like, oh, this is very strange. Right? I've never been. <laughs> but I understand now that my own, it's become my turn to start 
kind of, I'm not going to say reap the benefit, but start to experience that whole thing. And you start to see it because even when I see my aunties, those that are in their fifties, when they see someone in their seventies, they still prostrate, mm-hmm. right? So it's still mm-hmm. passed on. So there's no way it's kind of like, if this person is in her fifties, prostrating to somebody in their set, who are you <laughs> like to, mm-hmm. to feel like you're above that? Right. So I try to explain that to younger ones that it doesn't take nothing for you to be able, it doesn't cost you anything mm-hmm. to be able to just do that. And you being able to do that, you're indirectly protecting them and embracing them. And others who are the outside watching also now understand the value that this person mm-hmm. may have in your mm-hmm. life. Therefore, they would have to think twice to really disrespect that person because they now know that, okay, this person may not be directly related, but that person may have a variety of people who value them Mm -hmm. and will protect them and won't let anyone just Mm -hmm. do anything to them in that regard. So that's part of the interdependency. That's part of the collective area of being able to protect each other, looking out for one another, the village mentality as we Mm -hmm. titled, Mm -hmm. as we titled our last conversation, which is it takes a village. That's part of it. And even just going back to what you mentioned in regards to the negative part, of course, that stigma is what prevents us as a collective community village, whatever, to be able to deal with a lot of mental illnesses and things of that, being able to express ourselves. But I really do hope that the future generation can be able to see that it doesn't hurt you. You can learn so much if you allow for them, as you mentioned, to open up to you. There's so many things we can learn about ourselves, our history, our people, our culture, but those are the people who really want to learn that thing. I think a lot of these younger generation, for those who behave in the way you described, they're so individualistic right now. They're in a mindset where they're only thinking about themselves, the emotion, because that's how the world is. That's how the world is shaping us to think. We're only thinking about us and everything is on demand and everything is what I can get right now at this moment, how I'm mm-hmm. feeling in this moment at the, mm-hmm. the idea of selflessness is not the case anymore. It's not promoted strongly, right? The idea of selfishness is become a thing. And that's not to make it negative because I even promote, you know, self-care is not selfish, Mm -hmm. but the idea of promoting you, the individual and how you feel in this moment, that's become the standard. So you don't care about who talks to you anyhow. You don't care about who is the elder, who is about you, right? Mm -hmm. And, but for me, the way I've come up, I've always thought about, how everything comes back one way or the other. I don't mm-hmm. you call it karma, call it whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it in our culture, but you always think about how it's going to be passed on to you. Because one thing about this life is that age, unless you're alive, you're always getting older. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, whatever that person you were talking to now, if you're talking anyhow to this person, you know too, you're going to get to that age in life where somebody's going to talk to you anyhow. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to handle that? So it's for you to decide. And that's just how life works. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> You're so right that other people will see the way you talk to your elders of your community and they will take that as an example. Because I remember watching a video of a panelist of African younger generation like you having a conversation on the YouTube and there some Africans and American among them. And uh, one young man who happens to be African-American said, if you are friendly with a Nigerian person, and you go to their parents' home. If you are respectful, you become their son. Yes, that's a fact. Like you <laughs> become their son because they will pack yes. food for you. They will take yes. care of you. They will do a lot of all those things. So that is an example right there. You know, so many of our children, sometimes they don't 
recognize that or they want to, they don't actually want to practice that outside because I don't know what it is. They feel that it's something that they have to actually eradicate, but I'm always focusing on that and especially having a podcast about intergenerational conversation. Mm-hmm. So the last thing that is going to happen on the podcast is to have younger person calling you by your first name and all that stuff because it does not speak well when you're talking about intergenerational relationship, whether you want to set up an example for family or younger generation to see, okay, you could communicate with an elderly person, but in a respectful manner, they will listen to you. They will hear what you have to say. So we have to, in order for us to have that intergenerational connection between families, the way the younger generation express themselves is very important. And then also the parents who have to understand that they have to also show respect to the younger generation and hear what they have to say, because we come from a culture whereby Parents, elders just talk, but, you know, we don't learn to listen. So right. it goes both ways. So, mm-hmm. Auntie Abby, you have anything to say? Two things that I just want to add to what both of you said already. One thing about life is if you're lucky to have parents who's um, done a good job to really bring you up properly, respecting your elderly, respecting yourself, and, you know, all of those things, you'll be surprised. People don't realize how far that goes as you are as a person growing up. You can spot out a well-brought-up person in a second. You just have to interact with them with few sentences or be around them for just few minutes. You will know that this person is a well-brought-up. On the other hand, as we go with our lives, you will be able to identify um, people that never respected people in their own space, never respected maybe family members, including their parents. And you will see them as they interact with you that this is someone not very much brought up. And then before you know it, these are some put off. You put certain people off in that process and you miss certain things. Mm -hmm. So you may have a very smart quote unquote, well put together and all of that. But you just see that they're just not well brought up people. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it robs them in a really wrong, mm-hmm. you know, robs them in a very negative way that um, they just don't want to be around people like that. And you miss out in so mm-hmm. many ways mm-hmm. um, as you go through that journey. Mm-hmm. So I do admire parents that go out of the way because it's a lot of work to be a parent, especially to be a good parent. There's no perfect parent, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. a good parent. You did all the best you can, even though maybe when you're going through it, it doesn't seem as if you, you know everything or you're doing all the best. But when you look back, you look back 20, 30 years, like me as a parent of adult children, one married, they're all adults. And I look back and I see the product today. I say, oh, I think this is the fruit, you know, I've yeah. sowed the seed that we go to the next generation. So that's another thing. And if you respect your elderly person, you respect elders, and if it's part of your culture, as Kalechi says, it's just a matter of time. We are praying we want to grow old and everything. If you disrespect people ahead of you, it's just a matter of time. People coming behind you will disrespect you because you have really put yourself in a space of not respecting others. And that's the kind of way you carry yourself as you go through life. And people see that and people will not respect you because you don't appreciate respecting others and people will not respect you as well. It's just, you know, karma. Whatever you do to other people, it will come back to you one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep on 
there's so many beautiful things about our culture. Sometimes, you know, people may put up their nose and say, oh, you know, that's what you do in Africa. But there's certain things we still have to continue Mm -hmm. because it really produces good stuff, good outcome at the end of the day. That Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that we do for our children 20, 30 years back that we just did it just because you're a parent, you have to do. You Mm -hmm. can see that it's coming up now them doing exactly that, those positive things for their own children. <laughs> but you never knew that they got it. And right. I'm sure most of the things that Kelechi is talking about now, <laughs> dealing with his three children, his mom will be saying, huh? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's so that, funny that... Is, is this a joke or what? It's so it's, funny that you say that because my mom one day was here in our house and I think my wife was doing her hair and I was, of course, talking to one of my children about doing something this way. Like, don't I, I don't know. I was, I was nagging, and my mom was like, "Huh?" Like, and one was like, he, "He sounds just like you, right?" <laughs> you know, it's just like, "Yeah, yeah." He's like, "Yeah, I've heard that before." And of course, you, you know, of course, you, we laugh about it. But you know, in addition to what was said, I do want to just a message to those who are listening who identify as children of immigrants. I really encourage you to really think about the value of things other than like material things. Because I think when you think about, you may look at an older person and say, well, what is this person doing? The person is not, what are they doing for me? But you don't know how far people will go when you are, I, this, it's the same thing I really, when you talk about customer service, you don't know how far people will, but I value that. And people will go a long way to get good service, good respect. And I'm saying that because it's good to be good. That's how I always look at things. And you never know what's going to happen, who you're talking to that may have what opportunity, who may, mm-hmm. these people will vouch for you. And as Auntie Abby mentioned, as we discussed, the karma of things, if you're respectful to somebody and you spent a large portion of your life demonstrating respect to those older than you, those who are your mates, right? By the time your turn comes and someone disrespects you, when we talk about protection, the people who know will not let that happen. Because it's not it's not reciprocated. So it's the unfairness, the community won't allow that. But if you're someone who's been talking to someone anyhow, it's, it's your turn, right? Like, it's like, you see how it feels. So just another example, you know, of the pride. My wife and I went to the school for my daughter for parent-teacher conference the first time that we've done it here. And we were going expecting, like, you know, our, our child, of course, when they're home, they act a little differently, right? But when they're outside, you never know what they're doing. <laughs> so it's a little nerve-wracking. So we went to the school and our home teacher, we were asked like, okay, so how is she doing? We were expecting to hear some things about, you know, she talks too much, blah, blah, blah. And the teacher was like, she's the model student. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. I set the clock on the other students based on her. She's respectful. She does this. She's quiet. She does her work. And there's a certain pride. Like, <laughs> there's, there's unexplained. you have to be there. You have to feel mm-hmm. it to know that there's a certain relief and satisfaction and joy to be able to know that, man, okay. I did something. We're doing something right. Because I would always tell my kids, like, when you're good to be, when you show respect, you call them ma- masa, ma'am, however you want to do it. When you give them that direct respect, you don't know how far they'll go to, to do good things. And they never forget. They remember. They remember you. And if mm-hmm. the opportunity presents itself for them to be good back to you, they will do that. And so my daughter starts to see that now because when we were in Florida, my supervisor, my mentor at the time during my postdoc, when we would come to the lab and I would bring my daughter with me, and she would just be there, you know, when she talks to me, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. She would do her thing. She's respectful. Like Auntie Abby said, you know, a well-trained child, a well-brought-up child when you talk to him for a little bit. And every time, you know, by the time she's leaving, Dr. Tucker would give her $10. And at least she'd be like, why am I getting this money? 
And I tell oh. her like it's it's because of how and every time when I go and they say your daughter is well respected, keep doing what you're doing, keep being a good girl, right? And so she starts to see that like oh wow like of course it brings you things but there's a lot more so i try to let it it's not just money though like don't just think you're gonna get money for everybody to say yeah but it's also understand that people will go lengths to do nice things for you and it doesn't always include money they'll cook for you they'll treat you like your child and that means more than what you think you're looking for mm -hmm. that means a lot more when you have the embrace of older experience but again it's really how you perceive it if you value the intangibles, then you're willing to do those things. If you're only looking for the direct, immediate, processed type of interactions, then you're never going to get that. You're just, you're treating things like it's a New York minute. And so you miss out on all those things. The fact that I can be able to call both of you, my aunties, and be able, and, and our interactions throughout the past. Auntie Kemi, you've been so gracious to us and the kids. The chin chin has been amazing, right? You didn't have to do that. <laughs> you didn't have to do that at all, right? But that was something that, and even with the, the book for my son that he still has, those fire the, with the trucks and everything, mm -hmm. still loves those books. He still plays with them. That's the part of building community and sustaining it that we need to continue to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that I plan to continue to incorporate in the upbringing of my children and I hope they do it for theirs because yes it's a blended in terms of culture we're African-American but collectively we see what that does as far as how we're able to come together and be stronger in that manner so I encourage those who are listening to really think about that and not just think about what you're getting immediately but think about what that does in the long run and the big picture and yeah. for a community overall. Yeah. And many may look at you, oh, you don't have the same qualification. You know, I'm a professor here. I'm a doctor there. I'm a lawyer on top corporation. You know, thinking that that's what is much more important. And I think sometimes because in our community, we tend to put emphasis on many of our children who aspire to acquire all this qualification. And then sometimes they carry it overboard, thinking that, oh, that defines their status yeah. they tend to be arrogant thank you so much because i didn't want to just come out oh, and say they tend to be arrogant arrogant uh -huh. thinking that everybody has to bow down to you because of your qualification but it's beyond that person that you may be looking down you might not know like you said Kelechi, what that person may show you because you don't know everything you don't have information to so many things, you know. So that's another thing that I think we need to look at. I just want to ask this last question. Emotional expression is different across culture. Cultural background detects and predicts how emotion are felt and expressed. It shapes the way individuals should feel in certain situations or the ways individual expresses emotion. Given an immigrant background, do you think that as immigrant, with so many challenges, trying to adjust to a new country, do you think that we have to relearn a new way of expressing ourselves to fit the new home? We already talked about that. So is it easy to relearn new emotion expression when the original culture and emotion are interrelated, such as the way we express primary emotions, such as anger, fear, surprise, sadness, and happiness? Across the culture, we may have the same feelings but the way we tend to express it may be different according to our individual cultural background. Then there's also secondary emotion that comes into play, such as shame, pride, guilt, which according to the study also varies 
in different expression, depending on age, gender, and cultural background. So if we have to relearn, what would you say are some of the challenges that could pose difficulties in relearning a new emotional expression? Auntie Abby wants to go first. <laughs> I have mentioned a few times about we don't have a choice. We have to relearn certain things. Mm -hmm. Because whatever the situation may be, if you're in a new space, you have to learn some of the new things mm -hmm. in that new space because it's different from where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. So that's the most. But when you're talking about emotions and all that, and that's another issue that you find that some of our children find that, oh, mom, you guys talk too loud. Oh, mom, you're just so bad. You're just too much. Like, you know, are you fighting with someone or something like that? <laughs> That's how we use an and we you know, talk loud. We, very exactly. And that's how we express ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily mean you are really, really angry. You, you may even like be really hot headed at that time. That's it. You've, you've gotten over it. You've gotten over it. It's not anything you're carrying on. And then I think they'll be wondering, like that amount of emotions. And now you're now talking to me again and laughing. And you find that like really strange. Like I'm still angry with you. I'm, I want to be angry with you for the next one week for what you said. And the same thing as, you know, when you look at that, that is culturally. Our parents will just say certain things. I mean, sometimes mean stuff. And they've said it. They've expressed themselves. They've moved on. Mm -hmm. And later on, they will call you fears. Oh, Bimbola, um, do you want to go to your auntie? And, and you know, I've packed this food. And, you know, oh, thank you. Thank you, my, my, my beautiful daughter. You know, when you get there, and then you look at beautiful daughter. With all <laughs> With all this stuff you just <laughs> said about a few hours ago about me, they've said whatever they want to express themselves, they've moved on. And that's part of the emotions, you know, they've expressed themselves and they don't carry it on. But the person that you're expressing that to, if it's someone that is not really familiar with that culture or in that space, Mm -hmm. We really take it personal. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of our children here, because they didn't grow up on the other side. Mm -hmm. They grew up here. And when they see people showing so much emotion like that, they, they are very uncomfortable. And even in it's a, a space that there are certain times they don't want you to show emotions. Mm -hmm. you, you, you have to be a proper female. And you don't want to show aggressiveness at all. And then you have to learn how to do that as well as parents. You have to learn how to really control your emotions as well, yeah. um, especially anything that will make you feel that, oh, you are too aggressive or something like that, mm -hmm. or the way you talk, or you guys, especially when we are together, we put two or three Africans together. This is not a Nigerian thing. You know, Africans in general, we're loud. Very. We're loud. <laughs> we express ourselves. We talk loud and, yeah. and laugh and, and all of that. For someone looking at you on the outside, they say, oh my goodness, these people are so lousy and so loud, oh, whatever. Yeah. We're happy. We're happy people. So you have to learn. But you, every time, the longer you stay in this space, you begin to learn, try to control it. Mm -hmm. You know, is this a proper way to do that big expression? Or you have to tip, you know, like simmer it down a bit. And with time, you, you learn. You begin to know where to do certain things. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're still able to express yourself. Yeah. And I think that's what really works, you know. Thank you so much for that. Kelechi, you have anything to say? So I'll just briefly, I know we're getting ready to wrap up. I would just say that when it comes to the emotion, in order to not just survive, 
right? To thrive, I definitely believe you have to relearn how to properly understand and express emotions here in the United States. Because again, you're no longer part of where you were from. You're part of a larger pool of people mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. right? So when we talk about what we just discussed as far as how do we compose ourselves in African culture, when we had the intergenerational conversation, I remember the younger one said, oh, when I got in trouble in school, my dad didn't say anything, right? Like he didn't. <laughs> so you have to now relearn how to not just take what authoritative mm-hmm. bodies say to you, but how do you stand up to authority to defend mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. right? Like learning as women, African culture will train women to behave in one way, but mm-hmm. then you're also now like, telling our children, like you mentioned, to go be doctors, lawyers, engineers, mm-hmm. and you're facing a world that has this systemic structure that is meant mm-hmm. to oppress yeah. Black women specifically, how can we tell them to defend themselves and speak up for themselves mm-hmm. when in the household, we're not letting them do that? You know, so those things matter now, which is why it's important that immigrant and the transnational component of these emotional experiences play a major role because it's not just shaping what we're doing in the household, it's also mm-hmm. shaping who we are and how the we outside. portray ourselves in the outside world. But then also, and that now becomes part of the collective identification with being Black. Mm-hmm. Right, it's no longer just you being African, but it's now being black in America, mm-hmm. right? Or being a black immigrant in America, mm-hmm. and the different mm-hmm. type of experiences you have there. Our emotions are meant to now shape us to be able to do certain things to put us again. It's not for me, I'm talking about the idea of thriving. I think survival you can adopt certain things and then continue to retain what you have and try mm-hmm. to struggle with your kids and, mm-hmm. and your peers in terms of resisting the acculturative process that requires you to change your emotional mm-hmm. package, right? And now you have to, because you have to go through a level of discomfort where mm-hmm. you now have to be very uncomfortable saying how you feel because yeah. you never said it before, really. Yeah. And, yeah. and not just say it with insults, <laughs> right? Like now you have to say, I don't like this because this doesn't, you have to now have a little bit more depth Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, which can make some people uncomfortable because they've never had to go to those depths yeah. in the emotional bank to be able to bring out whatever yeah. they've had to bring out. So that requires a level of discomfort, which means that for those people who are receiving these messages and expressions, it's important for you to also have a little patience. Yeah. I think that's one thing that I've had to understand about working like with my parents. It's just being patient and understanding that, yeah, you can talk to them, but time also plays a role. Right. They also are not completely ignorant to where they are at in their lives. And they understand that time is. So you have to be patient in knowing that, Okay, well, I have to continue to just talk with them. We may have some back and forth, but I need to be respectful in how I go about doing that. Right. Because if you really want them to make that change, if you're working with an African, you're working with your parents or someone intergenerationally working with someone and you're trying to get them to make adjustments and how mm-hmm. you have to show some level of patience. You mm-hmm. have to be able to continue to repeat your mm-hmm. messages and your and, and what you're looking for and what you're trying to help them with mm-hmm. and be understanding. So mm-hmm. that is something that I think is crucial yeah. in order to get to where, you know, that person yeah. is trying to get, there's going to be some discomfort and there has to be some patience that is shown in order to kind of get there. One thing I wanted to talk about that you mentioned briefly now is about translation. How do I understand how to express my emotion? Do I even have words in understanding it, in expressing it? So when you come from a culture that does not allow 
such expression of emotion, even verbally, is very difficult to actually get it out. Mm -hmm. It's just like telling an African parent who never actually <laughs> tell their children, I love you. Then all of a sudden they say, I love you. It, sometimes it's very difficult for them to actually express, you know, because they didn't come from that culture. Because, you know, it, how do you translate? Because when you, as a person who is bilingual, Sometimes when you, when you, English is your second language, your first language is your traditional language. Exactly. And then sometimes you have to translate from English to your language. Sometimes some words, you cannot even find that word from your language to English language or from mm -hmm. English language mm -hmm. to your, your own language. So sometimes it's very difficult for people, immigrants, to actually express themselves because, you know, the translation of how you respond to different things comes from your experience, mm -hmm. your cultural background, your exposure to different things. As an African immigrant, you might be experiencing biases and discrimination, but you might not even see it that way exactly. because you've never been exposed to that from your background. Yep. You might be seeing it, but you don't even know that you're experiencing it. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, you know, because like I said, I have so many questions. In the author's presentation, she says, emotion are the key to social inclusion and success, and even in health. So she gave an example of immigrant children in Belgium who display few similar emotions to the majority of the Belgium natives, whereby they intermingle with other children from Belgium. And these are the children of immigrants. And they did better in school because they're able to connect with other children. Emotion meets social inclusion, advancement, and achievement. So this is part of what I actually talk about in my podcast when I ask many of uh, first generation that I interview that, how do you think your African immigrant experience growing up in an African immigrant home affect the way you relate to other students in college? Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. African-American, maybe white Asians, you know, are you able to integrate and connect with different group of people? Because that spells out how you're going to be successful. That's how you're going to know whether there's a job opening somewhere or how to actually present yourself in a corporate America. So what would you say to that? So I think the idea of using emotion as a way to inclusive, that's, it's very interesting you bring that up because, so one of the studies that I did with Antiago who just left was to talk with college students who are offspring of immigrants about their experiences growing up and the challenges and how that plays a role in how they perform in school and how they seek help or just cope with the stress of whatever it is, expectations or whatever the case may be of just being in a college environment. And one of the byproducts of that is this support group, this cathartic type of environment that's created in the focus group, right? Because they're just talking about what they're experiencing and then you find this relatability. Oh, I can mm -hmm. relate, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, my mom does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Oh God, mm -hmm. he did that. Like there, you create this sense of support and by the end of these focus groups, when I'm really looking more for data related to the managing of stress, coping, and, and what tools they use in order to, you know, from a health standpoint, it turns out that then you start to create a social pot product where it's like, oh, we need to have these conversations more. We need to create a space where we can be able to mm -hmm. talk and vent, and I need this outlet. And, you know, now you start to see people are creating these spaces, whether it's in different forums, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. there's like Clubhouse where people create these African or Nigerians in America or children mm -hmm. of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And they have these spaces where they can talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And so that helps, right? That helps them be able to feel like there's some inclusion in society. They're not alone. 
they can be able to now focus on whatever the task is at hand because whatever was bothering them and putting a little bit of weight on their emotions and their and just whatever a weight on them in general they're not able to relieve and and kind of lift that off them and focus on whatever their primary objectives are mm-hmm. so i definitely feel that in terms of creating a space the emotions like i said countless times i wouldn't say unique but i've always taken the approach of empathy allows you to truly understand what other people need mm-hmm. therefore you can be able to tailor your approach to them right but i think again if you're thinking about yourself only you won't be able to understand that but if you think about other people then you can be able to properly package how you can express yourself to them. I'm a very emotionally expressive person. That's mm. not something that is particularly common among men or just even among African men, right? So I'm one that I can, I'm very in, in touch with my emotions. I can properly articulate them. And so that allows me to do that. But when I, like I said, growing up with my intersecting identities, it was kind of like, that's womanly, right? That's something that you don't do you're not a man, right? Like mm-hmm. men don't do that. You just shut up and you move, you know, that's how the Nigerian mentality is. But I've always been, I've always been, a, but I also understand depending on who I'm talking to, I know how to deal with them. So when I'm talking with, you know, my wife or someone who does not necessarily subscribe to the African experience, I know how to properly articulate this is what, or if I'm talking to white people, <laughs> this is how you know I understand how to properly articulate yeah. my emotions and say mm-hmm. this is I I hear you I use certain words also mm-hmm. all about certain words too that trigger words trigger emotions yeah right? so yeah. you're also you're able to use certain words that trigger a particular emotional reaction that allows you to be able to now either have a good positive dialogue or or even have one that might be a little bit tense mm-hmm. so I've had that experience and I encourage other people to try to get in touch with your emotions. And, and when I'm talking to my Nigerian people, I know how to talk to them too. If I say, cause I know that if I, like if I, if I know that if I say something that may come off insulting, they're not going to be insulted by it. Yeah. Or yeah. If I come off a little harsh, they're not going to be because of the way the upbringing is. So that versatility of being able to have these multicultural sources that influence our emotions, mm-hmm. I think it's a gift and a curse. It yes. really is to me. And I think I embrace the aspect of it being a gift because of nothing is perfect. Our co- no, There's no manual for this life. There's no manual for friendship. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we're just going and they're flying at the seat of our pants. So because of that, right, I tend to embrace the gift because I believe that us having these abilities to be able to tap into different cultural sources, it's a gift that allows us to be able to really be global. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the, that's why I say for those, you don't cut off the immigrant experience and the emotional structure that your immigrant upbringing brought you because it's the non-Western world mm-hmm. still subscribes to a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. There are lots of similar emotional experiences or emotional expressions or understanding that are very similar across Asian culture, Indian yeah. culture, yeah. you yeah. know, so you don't completely cut that off because that allows you to be able to really make connections with other groups. So mm-hmm. now African immigrants can relate not just to among themselves, but you can now relate with people who are from India, with people who are from Asia, with people, mm-hmm. you know, and you and now that's how you become more versatile, more global if you intend to be those things, but it makes you a more well-rounded human being. Yep. Yep. And that is a gift, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have the ability to now 
you know, what it takes to be able to explore emotions in the Western world, how to tap into it, say your feelings, mm-hmm. you know, you can be individualistic, but if you also hold on to those other things, you now allow yourself to be able to go deeper in terms yep. of building interactions with other people yep. and have cross-cultural relationships. Yep. And that matters to yep. me. Thank you so much. You know, you give so much wealth of knowledge. So mm-hmm. my conclusion is that the author is asking us to consider emotion as act happening between two people, between peoples, act that being adjusted to situation at hand rather than as a mental state within individual. Our book and our talk was reviewed by others. Instead of seeing emotion as best owned by biology, we might see them as learned, instilling us by our parents and our other cultural agents or conditioned by concurrent experience within our culture. So it's not something that, you know, is biological, is something, and it could be changed, you know, like you, uh, we've been discussing. So in the closing, Pansa Pansa continue to normalize conversation about the importance of community engagement about African immigrant experience in America. As I always say, as we publicly continue to discuss difficult issue within our community, we're shredding away stigma associated with uncomfortable dialogue. So I want to thank Dr. Abby Fafohan that she had to leave because she has another meeting. The wealth of knowledge with Dr. Kelechi Lambert, the wealth of knowledge that two of you share today, I, I know many people will actually benefit from this conversation. And I really appreciate you. I know anytime I call, you always respond, <laughs> you know, and I'm so proud. My, <laughs> my nephew, when I see you, everything that you're doing, is a sense of joy and pride and you are such a good father to your children and uh, you continue to present as part of our community to be proud of and i really appreciate your dedication to the community to make our community to be better so thank you so much thank you so much Ati. i love what you're doing here at Panta Panta. i've always been a, a huge advocate of it and so anytime you need me i come running no matter how crazy life is this is always, always an escape. This is number one for me. So thank you so much for having me. So that's going to do it for this episode of My Black is Transnational. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. You can learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at blacktransnational.com. You can follow me, the host, at blacktransnational underscore on Instagram. Or you can follow the podcast at blacktransnationalpodcast on Facebook and Instagram. So, until next time, my name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lambert. My black is transnational. And I hope by the end of this, yours be too. Peace.